0: The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM.
1: It all happens here.
0: Today FM. I'm delighted that we have for the Culture Club today Uh, the professor of modern drama at UCC, but perhaps, or UCD I should say, but perhaps better known to you uh, previously for her best-selling book Notes to Self. She joined us at the time to discuss that. She now has her first novel published. It's called Ruth and Pen. Emily Pine, thank you very much for joining us here on The Last Word of Today FM. After the success, the enormous success of your book of essays, why turn to fiction?
2: Well, it was brilliant to no longer be talking about myself and I have to say my whole family breathed a sigh of relief when I said I might be writing a novel rather than a second memoir. No, I mean, it's just... After writing Notes to Self, it was really important to me to get those stories down and get them out of myself and and to kind of share them with the world. And then there's a point, and I think lots of people who write memoirs feel this, that you need to redraw boundaries a little bit. And so fiction is just a fantastic opportunity for me to keep writing, because I just love writing and having this kind of, in my 40s, having a second kind of career. But also not put myself on the page all of the time. So it was, you know, a lot of the emotional terrain of the novel, I think, still feels like my life or my, I have experience of those experiences. Is this thing that
0: they say, write about what you know, as in not necessarily events, but emotions and experiences? Yeah,
2: maybe write about what you feel you know, or that sense of connection to something. And, and you know, writing characters who make different decisions from me was a really interesting thought experiment. And as I said, a bit of a relief from only looking at myself.
0: Going back, though, to Notes to Self, and that's interesting. Do you have any regrets? Because what you're implying there is that maybe others might have had, if not regrets, maybe little bits of doubts about what you had written, because maybe it involved them?
2: I think it's tough, you know, if you write your life. I mean, I wrote my life, but I, of course I have to trespass into other people's lives too. And so I think regret would be putting it too strongly, but I recognise that there's a cost, you know, to me and to my family. And at some point, you know, the book is out in the world and it continues to be out there. But I need to, well, I, we all need to move on with our lives.
0: So if you were to write a memoir again in say 30 years time as you had more experience in life obviously you'd write about what happened in the interim but do you think might you go back almost and rewrite and rethink what you put into notes to self
2: you know it's a it's a really interesting idea a kind of thought experiment in itself to consider the younger the earlier self and put two bits of yourself into dialogue together yeah it's fascinating
0: tell us about the novel though ruth and pen what's it about
2: So it's set on a single day in Dublin and Ruth is in her early 40s and she's married to Aidan. And the crisis really for her this day is that she needs to decide her marriage is in trouble and she needs to decide whether she stays or she goes. And, you know, I, I thought about this and it really kind of came out of observing that enormous life decisions are often just kind of made in random moments, you know, and how... They're not kind of long thought processes but really come down to a single decision. And pen is in a different completely different part of her life because she's 16 and so she's moving forward and out and full of hope and possibility and excitement and she is uh, going with her best friend Alice to a climate change uh, protest so the novel is set in October 2019 when there were all those Extinction Rebellion protests they happened in Dublin, in London, in New York around the world and so really climate change and climate crisis is the backdrop for Penn thinking about how she wants her life to unfold and today is the day that she's going to tell Alice that she would like their relationship to be romantic rather than just friends and it's exploring how how tricky that terrain is and in some ways you might say okay well Penn is 16 and she's just going to tell her best friend that she's got a crush on her and that's not as big a deal as Ruth who's in her 40s and hasn't been able to have kids and you know is, is stuck in this moment but actually do you remember being 16 and how that was huge that idea of you know can I can I reach across this barrier and tell someone else that I like them like that's the biggest fear that we have and so I think in some ways the novel is really about being brave and trying to connect.
0: The way you speak about it is like you almost inhabited those particular characters that they've become almost real for you.
2: Oh they have and I talk about them, it's funny my sister will laugh at me because uh, I say things about pench she goes Emily surely you know this, you're the writer, you made them up and I'm not really one of those floaty people but I, I do actually start to believe they are real and somebody asked me recently, they said you know how do you feel about them as characters? Do you, or do you have a preference? And I think, well, I really, I really like Ruth, but I love Penn. You know, I just, yeah, I admire her so much. I, I would like to be more like Penn.
0: <laughs> we'll get to books in a little while as part of the Culture Club. But I want to ask you first about musical choices. And we ask every guest in this section to nominate the first piece of music that they ever remember or admit to buying. What do you go for? Well, I loved
2: Falling by Julie Cruz and I loved it for a couple of reasons because it was, obviously it was a soundtrack for Twin Peaks, which when I was, you know, I must have been 13, 14, was the coolest thing on television. And you kind of had to watch it in order to have any kind of conversation at school that week. And we were all obsessed and all you know, the strangeness of it and then also the darkness of it and how that song really evokes the kind of mysticism and it, it's really hard to pin down and it's kind of joyful and but also haunting and, and that's what that show is about and I think that's what being 13 or 14 is also about.
0: Judy Cruz, let's hear a little bit of Falling. <laughs> who were listening to this I had to do a quick Google search to see if I remember correctly damn damn fine cup of coffee donuts. yeah that was one of the key lines in nearly every episode of Twin Peaks
2: I know because it was a diner and I mean we didn't have diners in Ireland in 1990 you know Um, yeah it felt amazing And, and actually just listening to it there now it really stands up and I totally can Uh, totally transports me back to being that age and wanting to slow dance and fall in love to a song like this.
0: Okay, favourite album, what have you managed to pick out for us?
2: So this feels a tiny bit more grown up and a tiny bit more uh, recent. uh, Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. And I love, I mean, you know, there is a consistency here. I love the kind of sense of longing that comes through so many of the songs and also anger. You know, she really writes about You know, I lost my joy. Like, where where did I lose it? And like, how am I going to find it? And then there's a you know song. A lot of the songs are about relationship breakups. And fantastic song about how um, the after a breakup, the worst thing that the other person can do is to tell your secrets. Right. So just, I don't care if you move on. I don't care if you have someone else in your life. I don't care that you left me. But please don't tell my secrets to anybody else. And so I think that undercurrent of articulate anger really, really strikes a chord with me.
0: Let's hear a little bit of the title track from the album Car Wheels on a Gravel Road by Lucinda Williams.
1: Sitting in the kitchen
0: some bacon, Loretta singing on the radio. Smell of coffee,
1: eggs, and bacon, car wheels on the gravel road. Pull the curtains back and look outside. Somebody's Come on, now, child, we're gonna go for a ride. Car wheels on Car
0: I hadn't heard Lucinda Williams before you played that. It really turned to sound like Sheryl Crow almost off her as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of old American country music, yeah, which I love as a genre. And just that sense of, well, I mean, you get it from her voice, right? It's yeah. just so gritty.
0: I'm definitely going to check her out that really sounds really interesting. Favorite band, you've nominated a sort of a current favorite band.
2: Yeah, so I would say the Delines. And again, I mean, I'm only noticing it now as I write, as I say this out as a list, how American dominated this is. I Nothing suppose wrong with that. It just, con- it just suggests how that still is the world of the imaginary, you know, where we go, the kind of horizon and the West and so on. Anyway, the Delines, I mean, their lyrics are incredible because they're written by Willie Vlaughton, who's also a novelist.
0: He's been um, a guest on this programme many years ago, yes.
2: Yeah, he has a great novel called Lean on Peach that I think lots yeah. of people know. Um, And so... But he doesn't sing them. He has his own, he has another band as well. But in this band, in the Delines, Lines, it's, the lyrics are sung by Amy Boone. And I love this idea that Vloughton's lyrics are kind of quite potentially stereotypically male and what they do is transform them into a woman's perspective and so you hear about this disaffected characters who are on the outs, who are on the margins, who are gamblers and serial losers and you know they're just out of jail and so on and they're kind of on the edges and, and clinging on And so the lyrics are amazing but Boone's voice is just so lyrical and moving, and they have these amazing albums: Colfax, Imperial, Sea Drift is the most recent one. And I mean, on, on Imperial, I think one of my favourite songs is about insomnia, and how you know you you if you can, and I'm I'm not a good sleeper, so I obviously really identify, uh, but how you're just waiting for the for the blue of the morning light to tell you that at least you can stop trying to sleep now.
0: The track we have actually, though, is from the Sea Drift, and it's called Kid Codeine. People call her Kid Codeine. Hair in a perfect bouffant, just to walk down the street. Her boyfriend was a boxer. He named her Kid Codeine. Nothing ever makes a man. She's always cool and easy. Hey, kid Cody. I'm always pissed off. Always about to lose my mind. Always about to blow my top. Hey, kid. Okay, that's two new artists I'm going to have to check out on the basis of the choices you've given us. They're again called?
2: The D-Lines. And they're going to be playing in Dublin, actually, in November. So, yeah.
0: Very good. No, best gig you were at, and this I think was a difficult one for you to pick out something.
2: Well, I think of, I mean, these albums. You know, even just talking about them now, uh, but also gigs tell the story of a life and different things that you're looking for at different moments in time. So, when you say best gig, I think of how I was a total groupie for the Sultans of pain when I was 14, and go into and I was living in London, and they would play all the time, and um, and and be, somehow being an Irish was cool in the. Early 1990s and uh, the Sultans of Things were really popular. It sounds bizarre to say it now.
0: No, oh, no, classic cork music. <laughs> totally
2: classic. But they had this amazing song um, called uh, Oh My Goodness Now, I'm Totally Blanking Out. It's on not Where's
0: Me Jumper, enough. No, it wasn't
2: Where's Me Jumper. It was one about um, deep in the bottom of the sea, you know. Uh, and they used to get everyone in the audience, this is the cru- crucial thing, to lie down on the floor of these venues and air. Bicycle, air cycle with your legs, <laughs> and I mean these were not posh venues. Like, it was, it was I can just only beer, imagine on the floor exactly. beer. <laughs> we would just lie down and air cycle, and it just seemed totally wild and and also very cool because it was so uncool in a way. So. Sons of Ping have a place in my heart forever, um, but then I think I think now nowadays I would like to go to venues where you can sit down and listen to the music, uh, which, which makes it sound a little bit more pretentious than it actually is. But um, I went to see uh, the show that was promoting an album called "Harrow in the Harvest." Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings, and they're a couple, and they're they're really interesting to me as a as a musical partnership because they're married. And uh, they have two bands. There's Gillian Welch and then there's Dave Rawlings and they alternate. So one at one point in time they'll be working on Gillian Welch and her okay. music. And then it'll be Dave's turn to create an album. And... Yeah, I just really like that idea of, of this partnership and it comes through. So she.
0: Where did you see them play? It was here in Dublin, was it? Yeah,
2: it was here in Dublin at the Grand Canal Theatre, whatever it's called now. And uh, the, the, just, just extraordinary. And Rawlings is an, an amazing guitarist. And there's a, a solo that he plays in a song they have called Time the Revelator. And people were whooping in the auditorium because it was just so magnificent.
0: But that actually is the track that we have performed not in Dublin but in Arkansas in twenty eighteen. So let's hear it. <laughs> And Dave Rawlings performing Time the Revelator. Emily Pine is with us for the Culture Club. She's the author of the new novel Ruth and Penn, and we'll be hearing more of our Culture Club choices when we come back after this break. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here. Today FM. Welcome back. Emily Penn is with us. Uh, The author of Notes to Self, which was, of course, her acclaimed memoir set of essays. And also her new novel is Ruth and Penn. But, well, actually, let's go to books because there must be so many books that you could have picked. Uh, Favourite book or author? Who have you gone for?
2: So I've gone for an author because one of the things, and I'm not sure, I think quite a few people did this during the pandemic, was I started rereading. This is partly because a lot of libraries were closed. I'm a big fan of libraries. Um, But also, I felt like I needed to know the endings because the world had gone crazy and I needed to know where the plot was going. So I was engaged in a long period of rereading. And Pat Barker has some incredible um, trilogies of work. Uh, She's most famous, I think, for her novel Regeneration, uh, which was a beginning of a First World War trilogy about figures like Steve Crude Sassoon and about shell shock. And, you know, she was really writing this in the 90s when people weren't, investigating, uh, you know, bodies and the link to trauma and war. So she's really a pioneer in this and she creates some incredibly moving characters and we follow them across the trilogy. And I love that idea of linked books that we can follow the characters through. And she also has uh, another trilogy that starts in the First World War, ends in the Second World War. And then currently um, she's She's two parts into a trilogy about ancient Greece and about mythology around um, the siege of Troy. And again... What she's doing here, whereas previously her work was really focused on kind of masculinity, now with this trilogy, she's moved entirely into a kind of feminist retelling of the myths. So, you know, we've got Achilles and, you know, we've got kind of Helen of Troy as the object and so on. But actually we hear all of these voices of all these other female characters and it's just brilliantly done. It really brings you into the time period and into the myth and into the kind of intricacies of the story and into what it's like to one of the the kind of main narrators um of the novels are uh, is was formerly uh, a queen herself and she's sold into slavery after her she, her city is conquered um and so the way in which you know she thinks critically about what slavery means and she's someone who would have owned slaves before so again just thinking about that crossing of those boundaries is fascinating
0: We actually have a clip from one of the audiobooks from Pat Barker and this is from the Regeneration trilogy from The Ghost Road, which is the last book, and this part focuses on the working-class soldier Billy Pryor.
1: The blare of music inside the fairground drew him to stand in the entrance. So far today, the only young men he'd seen had been in uniform, but here were men as young as himself in civilian dress. Munitions workers. One of them was chatting to a young girl with bright yellow skin. He felt the automatic flow of bile begin and turned away, forcing himself to contemplate the bald grass. A child, holding a stick of candy floss, turned to watch him, attracted to the man who stood so still among all the swirl and dazzle. He caught her looking at him and smiled, remembering the soft cotton wool sweetness of candy floss that turned to clag on the roof of your mouth. She bridled, and turned away, clutching her mother's skirt. Very wise. As he walked on, his smile faded. He could have been a munitions worker, he thought, kept out of danger, lined his pockets. His father would have wangled him a place in a nice, safe, reserved occupation, and would not have despised him for it either, unlike many fathers. The weedy little runt would at least have been behaving like a sensible weedy little runt, refusing to fight in the bosses' war. But he never seriously considered doing that. Why not? he wondered now. Because I don't want to be one of them, he thought.
0: The ghost Road by Pat Barker. Now, it's probably the hardest question we pose to you, given that you're the Professor of Modern Drama at UCD. Favourite play? A show? Musical?
2: So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose a body of work again, right? And again, you know, like the Pat Barker that you just heard there, thinking about how tiny moments of the everyday are really sometimes the most meaningful and the most impactful, which actually is something that I've tried to do in my own work, is to pay attention to small details. And so it's really with huge admiration that I talk about here the work of ANU Productions. So they're a Dublin-based theatre company. that have been going for over a de- well over a decade now. I would have first seen their work in 2011 when they did this extraordinary show called Laundry that was set on Sean McDermott Street in the last of the laundries in Ireland to close, Magdalene Laundries to close. And they set this show, which is a... a which audience members, and I had never gone to anything like this before, audience members encountered one by one. So you get brought into the building and you have one-on-one interactions with the actors in various rooms. It was pretty intense and it was all, all of the characters that you met uh, were women who had been incarcerated um, in the laundry for various reasons and not most of them not, in fact, having had children. Uh, and it was really a kind of taking over of the space and it was challenging... At what i knew about peter and challenging what i knew about the world and about irish history and really drawing on the kind of history of the location and i thought it was so powerful and they went on to make a series of works all set in around the north inner city in dublin and really again challenging and raising issues to do with class to do with gender to do with power and access who gets to walk around certain parts of the city drawing on the kind of history of the manto but also connecting it then to the present moment uh, and, and they've continued to do it and and they had, an, in 2013, they had an incredible show called 13, which had 13 different parts happening all across the city to commemorate the 1913 lockout. So fascinated by history, but as Louise Lowe, the artistic director of Anu, always says, it's about making the past present. So it's then, now, then, now, she always says. I think that's a fascinating way to do work. Okay.
0: okay. No, your movie is something entirely different that you've chosen. <laughs> it is so, so different. You've gone for a sort of a, a, a comedy, which would have been sort of a very mid-market classic, movie. Yeah, well, I'm allowed to have mid-market I'm absolutely not, not <laughs> so saying anything well.
2: otherwise. <laughs> Sometimes you would just want to watch a film on a Saturday night. You know, um, When Harry Met Sally, uh, which is directed, obviously, by Rob Reiner, but hugely importantly for me, because I love her work uh, written by Nora Ephron, And just, I love how whip-smart it is. I love the characters. I love the tension between the two of them. I love, I kind of love every single thing about this film. I think I could watch it for the rest of my life. Also somewhat amusingly in that my partner hadn't watched it for years. Um, We'd been going out for years, I mean, before he ever saw it. And when he saw it, he said... I thought you were a lot funnier than you are because actually most of your best lines come from this movie. And I've been going around saying things like, well, don't go through life knowing that someone else is married to your husband. And that was a Carrie Fisher line from the, from the film. You know, or tell me I never have to be out there again. I think he thought that this was a profound declaration from me, but actually it was total ventriloquism of Nora Ephron's brilliance. So it's just, I think it's a, I think it's a really intelligent film as well as incredibly warm film, so I love it
0: We have a clip, Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal and thankfully this is not one of the famous scenes, this is where they reunite on a plane trip
1: Staying over? Yes Would you like to have dinner? Just friends I thought you didn't believe men and women could be friends When did I say that? On the ride to New York No, 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 no. I never said this Yes, that's right they can't be friends unless both of them are involved with other people then they can this is an amendment to the earlier rule if the two people are in relationships the pressure of possible involvement is lifted that doesn't work either because what happens then is the person you're involved with can't understand why you need to be friends with the person you're just friends with like it means something is missing from the relationship and why do you have to go outside to get it then when you say no 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 no, it's not true nothing is missing from the relationship the person you're involved with then accuses you of being secretly attracted to the person you're just friends with which you probably are Make come on who the hell are we kidding let's face it which brings us back to the early rule before the amendment which is men and women can't be friends so where does it leave us harry oh. goodbye okay
0: When Harry met Sally. Television. Um, I presumed you were a bit of a bookworm. Yeah, how can you tell? Okay, but you did watch some television as a child, did you? Yeah,
2: I did watch television, but again, and my mother would kill me for telling this story, but... uh I didn't, I didn't watch as much television as I wanted to. So my mum was not a fan of TV. So we did this mad thing that on Sundays we had to go through the TV pages for the following week and we were allowed an hour a day and you had to def- identify the programmes, like circle them in the paper as to what you were going to watch every day. And you couldn't deviate. It was like a shopping list, you know. You couldn't buy something in the supermarket that was not on the shopping list. You couldn't uh, watch TV that was not on the list. And then, and it, I only realised this a few years ago, then our television, our house was broken into and our television was stolen. And I said this to, and we didn't have a TV for about a year. And I said this to my mum recently and I said, do you remember, you know, our TV got stolen and the insurance company wouldn't replace it. And she looked a bit evasive. And she said, actually... uh, it didn't get stolen I just uh, got bored of watching TV so I put it in the back of the cupboard and told you it had been gone and she said and it was great because then we sat around reading and telling stories and playing games she was big into we were big into board games when I was a kid and, and she said it was brilliant we all got on really well and then one day you and your sister were both sick and I, both off school and she goes I just couldn't take it anymore so I produced the TV television again and we didn't notice so I was always slightly obsessed I go round to other people's houses and you know there'd be a TV on in the corner I'd just be like totally glued to it
0: And what did you like as a
2: child? Well I liked schlocky things I mean Twin Peaks I've obviously yes. already talked about but I liked schlocky things like Heart to Heart I mean I still love bad detective shows basically um, Heart to Heart Remington Steel do you remember that one? Yes
0: Pierce Brosnan was in that
2: Yeah absolutely um Colombo, another favourite. Peter
0: Falk. Well, that's a classic. I mean, it's regardless. a classic. Now you're likely to like actually it. Actually, recently in doing Culture Club, nominated Colombo as his favourite TV show of all time.
2: Well, I knew that I had something in common with Gabriel <laughs> Byrne. I just didn't know it was
0: that. <laughs> okay, but your selection. When I we were talking to the editorial team earlier, when I looked at your selection for TV, I went, "What's that?" And a couple of members of my team went, "This is the best thing on television at present." And I went, "What? The Great Pottery Throwdown?"
2: Yes, so if you haven't watched it, you have to watch it. And one of the great things about Channel Four is that they have this like archive that, unlike the BBC, they will share with members of the Republic of Ireland. And um, so, yeah, the Great Pottery Throwdown. It's a, technically a competition, very like the Great British Bake Off kind of format, where everybody has got you know a task, and there's a technical and and all the rest. But these people are so nice. They are so nice to each other. The judges are nice. It's so considerate. The the people help eat, the contestants help each other out you know it's so creative I love what they you know that they're always constantly working with their hands it's I mean it's it's so much fun to watch and you know they are just messing about with giant lumps of earth as well it's great fun
0: We have a clip from it this is where Judge and Potter Keith Primer Jones cries over a breakfast set
1: You ready Rosalind? <sighs> <laughs> I know what to expect Oh
0: Happy with Henrietta? Yes,
1: <laughs> yeah. It seems to have all worked out. Well, I entirely agree with you. Oh, thank I you. I entirely agree with you. <laughs>
0: Stop off oh. again. It's
1: fantastic, mate. It's fantastic. Oh. It's not my cup of tea or coffee, but <laughs> the execution of your illustration of your hen—it's fantastic. Really, really, really good. Oh. <laughs> Well done.
2: For me, what you've really achieved is a functional set and your style is very country
0: kitchen, isn't it? There is certainly a market for this. It's charming. Like That's, you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Charming, yeah. I have to tell you, Emily Pine has a beaming smile on her face listening to it's,
2: that. How could you not be <laughs> heartwarmed by that? And I tell you what, I started watching that during lockdown too and that is exactly what we needed. It's amazing.
0: A new category we've introduced recently. Favourite artist or best exhibition you've attended?
2: So I'm going to nominate a gallery and it's the Manchester Art Gallery. Uh, and partly because I encountered, I was there in 2019 and I went to see two shows when I was there. And one was Halima Cassell and she's an amazing sculptor. And she's she's based in Yorkshire and uh and I I used to live in York so I don't know, I used to feel the connection to her. But she has this I mean, I'm not really that into ceramics and stuff uh, normally, you know. Ooh, do you want to go and see a ceramics exhibition? Well, not actually, really. it's
0: the great pottery throat on, <laughs> so maybe there is a theme developing.
2: Okay, yeah, you are diagnosing as well as questioning, clearly. Um So Cassell's work is interesting. One of the kind of central features of her work is that she takes earth and clay from different parts of the world and her ambition is to make a piece of work or a sculpture from every different country in the world and to show the kind of innate beauty and the kind of solidarity and connection. And there are different colours and textures and everything that emerge from this, um, but there's a richness from bringing them all together and seeing them. And so I spent ages that day just wandering around the Cassell exhibition. And then, you know, going upstairs into the to kind of permanent exhibition. I noticed this strange thing. I'd never seen it in any gallery before or since. And and there were these uh, two, most paintings had two plaques next to them. So there was the official kind of, you know, painted in um, oil in 1843 and you know, depicting the Duke of who whatever. And then there was an alternative feminist art plaque. It was this kind of feminist art club um, who had gone around relabeling all of the works, saying you know, yes, you can see him on his horse because he's demonstrating how powerful he is and lots of men did this in the 19th century and they wrote and it's a kind of key trope of colonialism and patriarchy and I just the playfulness of that and I thought God wouldn't that be so much fun to do that in the National Gallery of Ireland right to have two narratives not just the official story which is telling you know this is an important painting and, and so especially in a case where there's so few works by women on the walls of national and regional galleries, right? And how that, you know, you can do a kind of canon of recovery where you go out and you find works by, you know, Mary Swansea and Manie Jellett and you put them up in the walls and you give them their due respect, which is brilliant, obviously. But actually a lot of, of the historical works, women weren't, their, their work was being thrown out, it wasn't being preserved, so you can't do that. So why not have feminist or... Or do it in lots of other ways. Why not have kind of post-colonial narrative come in and say, here is a picture of Africa at a point when it was under colonial occupation by X force. You know, really, really using the painting to show how beautiful it is, but also to show how, how painting is involved in kind of stories about
0: power. So, Emily, for our podcast edition, I want to know the cultural buried treasure, anything that you would recommend to anyone that perhaps we've overlooked?
2: So they're not buried in the sense of underground, uh, as I might interpret it. But I want to kind of pull out the work of several women theater makers who I just uh, I enjoy going to their shows so much, and I just I start I've started teaching their plays as well, and I just would love to see them be household names. And uh, so I'm going to talk about um, Amy Conroy um her play "I Heart Alice" or "I Love Alice Love I," uh, which is a one woman show where she or sorry there are two actors but she wrote it and they talk directly to the audience and when I, I brought my father in to it and um, we were both uh, very much enjoying uh, the fact that during it they hand out uh, Swiss rolls, so slices of Swiss roll and the audience get to, to, um, to eat slices of it and just thinking about how uh, how they're telling a story that's difficult about being gay in a culture where you couldn't be visibly together. Um, obviously, before um, all of the kind of great advances that we've seen um, in recent years and how that's a difficult subject matter. But they're doing it in this kind of beautiful, really engaging and uh, warm uh, way. And then, you know, uh, looking at Sonia Kelly's uh, body of work and she's got a new play coming out this summer actually in Galway with Druid and her play How to Keep an Alien um, which again is actually about uh, her uh, partner trying to get a visa um, and try- all the things that you have to do the kind of portfolio of evidence you have to provide to show that you're a couple but actually the play is also about her trying to um work out whether she actually wants this kind of permanence and this kind of uh, relationship in her life. Um, And again, told directly to the audience, it's a one-woman show where she's really, really funny and making everybody laugh alongside this sense of, oh, what if she? What if she loses? What if she loses this relationship? And then I won a, a series of monologues, so three of them um, by Elaine Murphy um, in a single play called Little Gem, that was a Gunanua production that started in the Civic Theatre in Tala and then was eventually, um, I mean, has toured internationally, a hugely successful um, show. Lots of people might have seen it. Uh, and these three women, I mean, you've got they the issues that they talk about here. You know, death and illness, um, loss of sexual libido, uh, drugs, and um, kind of theft and teenage pregnancy. These are pretty dark materials, but the way they talk about them again, it's so warm, it's so direct, it's so supportive. And these three women are are three generations of a of a single family, and they're really about connections and how they support each other. So, what I'm what I'm trying to say here is is to that a lot of culture, I think, is driven by trauma, right? And is driven by, you know, the kind of voyeuristic thrill or the kind of visceral thrill that audiences or readers or viewers get from seeing something really dramatic or really uh, traumatic uh, happening in front of them. But what I love about this work is how they address things that are really difficult, but do it in a way that doesn't traumatise their audiences. And I, I have so much time for that and admire it so much and I just think you go to their shows and you know you're going to come out with a smile on your face. There's hear, a lot to be said for we
0: that. We actually have a little bit of Amy Conroy's I love Alice, love I. I love cake. Any cake. <laughs> she explained what she wanted to do. She wanted to make a show. She was a
2: little unsure about the whole thing herself. She was only just discovering it. But she wanted to make it
0: with us. There was a lot of fun, flattery and attention. By the end of lunch, I felt important, like our story mattered. We didn't commit to anything, but discussing it, and that we'd ring her in a day or two.
1: She proposed that we would meet every week, sometimes together, sometimes separately, and she would ask us a series of questions. She was interested in memories, uh, opinions and stories, getting to know you
0: kind of thing. She promised that there would be no judgement, and that if we didn't want to discuss something, then we wouldn't have to. The more mundane, the better. She said. Oh, why in God's name would we want to do that? <laughs> I'd be mortified. Making myself vulnerable, ridiculous. God, the embarrassment. Oh, what people say. I've always cherished what Alice
1: and I have together. Talking about it would feel cheap, like we were belittling it or giving it away.
0: That's by Amy Conroy. Just to finish, Emily Pine, as professor of modern drama at UCD, are enough people still going to see performances like that one? Is there enough interest, as you can see it, that we would have had from, like, in previous generations, given all the counter attractions that are there?
2: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think one of the great things about the opening up has been just seeing the joy and enthusiasm of audiences back in the room, right? Theatre companies did incredible things to make theatre happen, you know, uh, during the lockdowns when effectively we were banned from this kind of interaction. And, but, but online is not the same. You're streaming it, but it, we, want, we want to be in the room. We want the smells. We want the feelings. We want to, I kept saying, I can't wait to be sitting next to someone I have no, I've never met in order to, and the lights to go down in order to watch something that's happening on stage. So, yeah, I mean, I think everyone is just delighted to be back.
0: Emily Pine, thank you so much for joining us here on the Culture Club on The Last Word of Today FM.
2: Oh, thanks a million. I had so much fun.
1: The
0: Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.